Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, OnScript friends. This is Matt Lynch. I co-host the podcast along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and sometimes Chris Tilling and Amy Brown Hughes, who steers OnScript's theology ship. Could I ask a favor of you? If you haven't given OnScript a rating on your platform form of choice, could you please do that before the, uh, oh, I've been meaning to do that feeling wears off? That would be greatly appreciated. Um, also, we'd love it if you could, uh, right now, actually, uh, open your window, whether you're at your office, car, or house, and give us a literal shout out. We'd love to see what kind of reactions that would get. You could even record your antics and send them to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com, and then we could enjoy them. Uh, or if you're walking or running with headphones, head into uh, a busy place that will maximize your reach and give us a shout out and see what happens. You know, we can share that together. A quick thanks to all of our regular givers. We appreciate you so much. You're the best, really. Uh, all right. Enjoy this episode hosted by Matt Bates. Toward the end of his famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says something tantalizing. Paul states, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul's words are evocative, even a bit haunting. For now we see in a mirror dimly, We don't even see the thing itself. We only see a reflection of the thing. And what we do see is obscure, dim, dampened. We see darkly. This is Matthew W. Bates, your host for On Script. Our guest today is Rafael Rodriguez. His book, you all ready for this title? Jesus Darkly. Yes, Jesus Darkly. Remembering Jesus with the New Testament. Thanks for joining us, Raphael. Thank you, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let me start by uh, telling a story. I think I already relayed this to you briefly, um, but for the sake of our listeners, I think it's a good story. And this is a story about how I first encountered your book. So uh, at SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature National Conference, there's an enormous auditorium that is stuffed full with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of books. And uh, so I'm wandering through the SBL stalls instead of listening to a paper, uh, just browsing the racks, seeing what I see. Uh, and then everyone probably does this at some point at, at SBL. So as I'm browsing through the stacks, I, I happen to uh, come in front of the Abingdon um, stall, and I see in front of me uh, your cover. Uh, and I see in front of me Jesus Darkly, and I'm just sitting there staring at your cover, and it has this sort of brooding look to it, right? Jesus Darkly. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm standing there, and I just can't even help myself. I'm just talking to the random person who's standing next to me. Uh, whoever it might be, I have no idea. Just a random stranger. And I say, wow, Jesus Darkly. That is the single best title I have seen in the entirety of this SBL bookstall. 
And then the person turns to me, and he says, Matt! And uh, I say, Chris! And uh, it is just by happenstance, Chris Tilling, uh, one of our on-script co-hosts that happens to be standing next to me. Uh, And I had no idea it was him, nor he me, as we were just standing there both looking at your title. And uh, and uh, it was sort of funny, so we hug, you know, and uh, I hadn't actually seen Chris at all uh, at the conference. We don't see each other very often, as he's uh, London-based, and uh, I'm here in the U.S. So anyway, that's how I first came across your book, uh, Raphael. So congratulations to you uh, and uh, to Abingdon for uh, the tremendous title. So uh, how about we start with that? Uh, how did you How did you end up with this title? Uh, that's a that's a great question. You you left off the end of the of that story, which is that you walked away not having purchased my book. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it could be that I knew that I could get a freebie yeah, from right. Abingdon uh, right. if I was to uh, host an episode <laughs> with you. Uh, it I'm, could be uh, that that was the reason. I'm I'm, I'm very grateful. Yeah, the t- uh, in my experience, giving a giving a title to a work is is really hard. You want to be you want to be evocative and give something away of of what the of, of what the content is, but you don't want to give give too much. And and in in my opinion, I'm notoriously bad uh, about titles, so I just I, I I came up with three or four. But but Paul's Paul's uh, description of seeing as seeing in a mirror darkly has has stuck with me really since I was in high school. Um, and so as I was trying to come up with with different ideas, and, and actually the the original title for the book was simply Why Jesus. Um, so I was trying to come up with alternatives, um, uh, to that. And, um, yeah, there was something about, uh, there was something about the, the tension between, um, between the, the, the value and the, and the esteem and the regard that, uh, that I have, that I was raised to have for the text of the New Testament, um, on the one hand, and the, the contrast with the fact that I need the New Testament Exactly because Jesus is absent and I don't see him uh, the way I see the people who are in and out of my life on a daily basis, um, wanting to get at something of that uh, of that tension. Uh, so, you know, of the of the ideas I sent to Abingdon, uh, Jesus Darkly was uh, one of two or three, and um, and it was the one that my editor was most uh, enthusiastic about. It was also the one I was least confident about. I, I didn't know if it sounded too enigmatic or too new agey or or anything like that so uh so i'm really happy to hear that that it's it's getting a good response yeah uh that was the right choice i think um jesus starkly but you're right titling books is tricky it's it's sort of like a striptease right you don't don't want to reveal uh too much or too little right you got to kind of um stimulate uh the audience to um to want more to to think about uh what might be coming um and uh it's it's a little bit tricky in that way so, um, yeah, that's probably not a good analogy for a book about Jesus, right? <laughs> um, but hey, there, there we go. We've got it. Um, you know, and, and speaking about other things that are inappropriate, you know, or at least slightly inappropriate, um, as I was uh, reading through your thank yous in your book, I don't always do that in the preface, but I, I couldn't help but notice that you thank a number of females in your life, uh, including a certain Holly Shih Tzu. Um, do you care to comment on that? <laughs> Yeah, we uh, we 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 have a dog who's uh, just a, a little over three years old. Um, uh, my whole family we are allergic to animals. That doesn't stop us from having a cat and a dog. Um, but when we decided to get a dog, my wife did some research and found that Shih Tzus are hypoallergenic, 
So, uh, so we decided to get a Shih Tzu and I said, you know, one of my, one of my few conditions for us getting this dog is that I get to name her and I wanted to name her Holy. Um, and my wife said no. And we were, we were arming for, um, for an Armageddon style conflict because I was not going to back down. Uh, and then somebody on Facebook suggested I add another L, uh, and make it Holly. And so she has, uh, she has been christened Holly Shih Tzu. Uh, whenever I post about her on, on Facebook, I use that hashtag Holly Shih Tzu. Uh, and then our cat is Callie. So she's Callie cat. Awesome. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, that is quite the name. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, a little bit more. <laughs> well, you've already you've already this. got the dirt on him, but uh, well, let's give a little bit more on uh, Dr. Rafael Rodriguez. Uh, he is professor of the New Testament at Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee. He grew up in Colorado Springs. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez holds a Bachelor of Arts from Cincinnati Bible College and an MA from Cincinnati Bible Seminary. He received a PhD from the University of Sheffield in the UK for his dissertation that was subsequently published as Structuring Early Christian Memory uh, by T.N.T. Clark. Beyond that, he has penned four additional books, Oral Tradition in the New Testament, If You Call Yourself a Jew, and The So-Called Jew in Paul's Letter to the Romans, and in addition to that, the book that we are discussing today, Jesus Darkly. Uh, well, Raphael, you opened the book by talking about your favorite passage in the Bible. Um, that's always that's always tough. Um, I, I've been accused by my students of telling them that I have more than one favorite. Um, I don't know if uh, if that's the case with you too. Um, but um, what is your favorite, uh, and how does it relate to your project in Jesus Darkly? Yeah, I, I, it's uh, it's interesting that you ask that because this Saturday I will be teaching some high school students on. Uh, on another passage, I will call my favorite passage of uh, of scripture, which is the the call and commission of Samuel in First Samuel three. But I, I I opened Jesus darkly with the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke twenty four in the aftermath, not just of Jesus' crucifixion, but also the unsettling reports of the empty tomb and the angelic announcement that that he's risen. Um, and, and I think Luke is just having fun with his narrative and with his readers as he's uh, as he's telling the story of Cleopas and another disciple. We never learn uh, his name um, walking to Emmaus and a stranger joins them. And the reader right away, we find out that the stranger is Jesus, but Cleopas and the disciple um, are left in the dark. And so they don't know who they're talking to. But they're talking about um, the events of uh, of that weekend, the, the crucifixion on Friday, um, you know, some things uh, uh, over the next couple of days that that we have no idea about, and then uh, and then as I say, the unsettling reports that some the women went on Sunday, the first day of the week, to uh, to attend to the body, only to find that the tomb was empty and that some young man was uh was claiming that jesus was alive and nobody nobody knew what to make of this so here's cleopas and the disciple doubly ignorant uh they don't know who they're talking to and they don't know what to make of the things they've heard and so when jesus says hey what are these things that you're talking about Uh, cleopas just looks at this stranger with a with a a look of horror and shock on his face Are, are you the only one who has no idea what's what's happened and uh, and that in itself would be funny, 
But then Jesus says, oh, what things? <laughs> Which I just think is fantastic. Uh, you know, oh, no, enlighten me. Let me know. Let me in on, on this thing that I don't know about. And so Cleopas runs through the events, gives a fairly factual account uh, of what's going on. And I, I'm struck by the uh, realization that Cleopas knows quite a bit about Jesus, and yet he knows nothing at all about Jesus. He, he doesn't understand uh, what to make of, of these facts that he has. He doesn't know how to put them together. He doesn't have a framework for hanging them. Um, and not to mention, he doesn't recognize that he's talking to Jesus. Uh, so, so it's with some intrigue here that we read that Jesus, you know, the stranger who Cleopas doesn't know uh, who he's talking to and who Cleopas claims doesn't know what's going on. The stranger then explains to him all the things that are written about the Messiah. Um, and as the, as the journey comes, not quite to an end, but it's the end of the day, they're going to make a stop. Um, Jesus feigns like he's going to go on, you know, Hey, you know, maybe one more village. Um, and Cleopas and the disciples, despite their ignorance, uh, show this hospitality. They, they, you know, they, they, they impress on Jesus. No, no, stay with us. Stay, let, we'll, we'll walk, we'll walk together again tomorrow. Uh, and so Jesus agrees, um, and then takes over the, the responsibilities of host at the meal, right? Takes the, takes the bread and breaks it. And in that act, um, reveals his presence. To Cleopas, uh, the 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 and and the other disciple, the disciples recognize him. Um, they see him. They recognize him, uh, and then he disappears. Um, and so now they know Jesus, but they can't see him anymore. And really, that I think is kind of the launching of the story of the New Testament um, from the first century uh, all the way to today, where now we have the framework, we have the understanding, we know. Uh, we know what has happened, um, but we don't see Jesus, and we wait for the time when we do see him again. Yeah, so um, in a sense, we see Jesus, but we don't, right? Uh, as uh, as uh, our our image of him uh, is is through a mirror darkly uh, in that kind of way. One of the things that um, I think that, um, you know, that is present in this story of, um, you know, Jesus and Cleopas uh, is um, that Jesus certainly frames his own significance in light of um, the scriptures of Israel. And that's something that you're up to in this book, too, um, that you're very interested in sort of mapping or modeling um, the memories of Jesus in light of how those were um, created and framed and contextualized in light of Israel's scripture. And for me, um, that sort of raised additional questions that I wondered how you might unpack, uh, because there are different models, right, for how we would think about the relationship between the scriptures of Israel and the New Testament or Jesus. Um, the scriptures of Israel read how, then, as you're thinking about mapping um, the memories of Jesus onto them? I, I, I don't have an answer to that question. I, I, I suppose I, I would view reading, reading scripture as uh, not so much... Um, l- it's not akin to reading the instructions on an IKEA table, where you know you 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 read through them, you do what they say, and then at the end you're done. Um, it's it's much more like uh, in, engaging in a relationship where um, where it, it's never ending. It's 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 always a process, um, and you know part of that process is going to involve um, some you know what we might call prophetic. Uh, um, 
uh, relationships where a text will announce something will happen, uh, and then we see that thing happen. Um, you know, Justin Martyr in the second century is big on this. Um, other texts are going to be less prophetic and more establishing a kind of pattern or a kind of this is how the world works or this is how God works. And if um, at its deepest level, this is how God re- relates to creation, we should expect to see something of that in the story of Jesus and his relationship to his followers or to the rest of creation uh, or whatnot. Um, you know, Francis Watson and Richard Hayes are going to uh, do a lot with, um, uh, you know, reading reading the scriptures figuratively, um, kind of, uh, you know, understanding what to expect in the present or in the future on the basis of what's happened in the past, but then also being open to a re- reinterpretation of the past based on what's happening in the present. And really, I think that's the that's probably the heart of the answer is that is that we're always we're always engaged in a process of tacking where we're moving in one direction but always on the lookout for having to make adjustments uh, or movements in order to uh, remain faithful not just to what we've received but also to where we find ourselves in the present and where we uh, and where we perceive God calling us uh, in the future yeah that's helpful um, yeah it, it seems to me in reading through your book that you do you are involved in all those different ways of of reading um, the Old Testament and Jesus in light of it. Um, but that you do seem to especially be attuned to the narrative dimension of the text and wanting to see um, sort of, uh, I don't know, the way that creates a space for a, a typological relationship. Um, certainly we see a fair bit of that in um, in your reading, and we'll maybe have some opportunities to discuss a couple of those instances um, later on. Let's jump into your uh, first chapter, though, if you don't mind. Um, and uh, you you set up some some of your project here by um, by talking about method, um, and you use the Watergate scandal uh, as a way of um, of driving home some of the methodological um, framework that you want to uh, put forward. Why Watergate? Uh, what does this analogy do for you? Mm. Yeah, Michael Schudson's uh, 1992 book on Watergate, which was published to commemorate the 25th anniversary of uh, uh, 25th, 20th anniversary of, um, uh, of the Watergate scandal made some interesting points. He, you know, writing two decades after, after the events, uh, he a- acknowledges a complaint that's made by, uh, members, uh, members of the media and political scientists that for how serious and potentially devastating the Watergate scandal was for, uh, for American constitutional norms, it seems it's 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 had shockingly little uh, uh, ongoing effect. That 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 there aren't that there aren't visible structures and 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 practices that uh, that you know reflect back to us that that we've been through this fairly traumatic time politically politically speaking. Um, and, uh, and, and Schutzen acknowledges that and he chronicles, um, you know, the degradation of knowledge about the facts of Watergate uh, over those two centuries or two decades. Um, but then he goes on to say, it's not that Watergate has disappeared. And in fact, Watergate, uh, in, in many ways has become part of the script by which we do politics. Uh, so for instance, anytime there's a, uh, there's a political scandal. 
it's going to be discussed almost inevitably in terms of this or that gate. Um, and, and we have Watergate to thank for that, that that would not have, ha have been the case prior to 1972. Um, and even in our own time, now Schitzen in, in the early 90s could not have known this, but even in our own time with the, uh, with the Trump administration and its coverage in the news, um, the, the, the presence of Richard Nixon in our political memory um, is just obvious and, and unavoidable, whatever you think of uh, either the president or his, uh, or his adversaries. Um, and so what Schitzen, I think, demonstrates is that you can, you can be ignorant of facts and details and yet be incredibly um, indebted to something as framework um, and that that's what Watergate is. Uh, I'm not necessarily interested in seeding the ground that says Paul is ignorant of the facts and details of, of Jesus' life, but we have to admit that he doesn't convey those facts and details in his letters uh, and so I want to consider how then does Jesus as framework work in Paul's letters? And I, and I think the answer is it's fairly robust. Jesus is everywhere. Um, and, um, and so I, I, I try and take aim at this claim that, that Paul has no interest in uh, Jesus as a historical person. Um, if by that, what you mean is Paul doesn't discuss Jesus as a historical figure, then okay, fine. That's right. Um, but if, uh, instead, what you mean, and, and this is often what is meant, that Paul only is interested in Jesus as um, uh, as a vehicle for pursuing his own agenda. Uh, I actually think that's wrong. I think I think Paul has no agenda before he encounters Jesus, or at least he doesn't have the agenda we see uh, in his letters uh, before he encounters Jesus. And so Jesus makes all the difference uh, in what Paul's writing, and, and and I try and bring out some of that in, in the discussion. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very helpful. Um, one of the quotes that you you um, I, I guess offered in the book, and I think this is actually a quote of Shudson um, and his work on Watergate, is that Watergate um, uh, it offered tools for a society's thinking aloud about itself, not only at the time but in retrospect, because it's a public event, right? And um, I think your um, it seems like your project is trying to suggests that Jesus um, and what Jesus accomplished was a similar sort of public event that um, left tools for society to think aloud about itself, um, and that that process of memory, right, is connected to um, to public events, and and they're all sort of wrapped together. Uh, and so that that as we we look at what we find in Paul and the Gospels and so on and so forth, uh, it's a it's a comparable situation where some of the details may be not as sharp, uh, but nevertheless there's a collective memory um, that uh, has taken those details, uh, assimilated them into a public event, simplified them in some ways, and uh, can move forward with a memory of Jesus that's faithful. Um, but in some ways different than what Jesus himself did. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, th I think that, you know, it's, it, it's, um, uh, it's a bit unfair to, to level any kind of accusation against Paul because he doesn't look at Jesus and describe what he sees. Um, it would have been nice if uh, we would love to have that kind of information if he, if he, had, if he had done that. Um, but he doesn't do that, and instead we can appreciate what he does do, which is to to use Jesus more as a lens through which he looks at other things, including Israel's scriptures, um, including uh, relations between uh, um, 
Jews and Judeans on the one hand and non-Jews or Gentiles on the other. Um, the way Paul thinks about ethics, how we do life together, piety, how we relate to the God of Israel, eschatology, all of these things. Um, you know, Jesus, again, isn't the object at which Paul is looking. Instead, he's the lens through which Paul sees everything else. Uh, and so describing uh, or trying to describe, trying to get a feel for the texture of that lens, I think is is important to do. Well, that's great. Um, yeah, circling back to kind of the, the way in which um, memories of Jesus were situated in light of the Old Testament scripture, um, one of the parts that I just thought was a nice nugget, right? In Jesus Darkly, you cast a lot of light at the same time, right? Uh, perhaps uh, by virtue of the darkness, right? Uh, whenever you have these nuggets of, of brightness, uh, maybe they shine all the brighter. Uh, but it was your, um, your exegesis of 1 Thessalonians three eleven through 13, uh, this on your pages 13 through 14. Um, one of the, uh, I thought this was one of your more interesting moves as uh, you're talking about um, the return of Jesus um, and the, peru- the parousia. And um, you say the core question isn't who attends Jesus at the parousia, um, but why does Paul portray Jesus with an entourage? Um, and then, and then you, you, you engaged, I thought, in a fascinating exegesis. Um, could you walk us through that a little bit? Uh, what's Paul up to here? And uh, how does that maybe illustrate something about um, Jesus' memories? Yeah, so, um, so I, you know, it, it's, it's always hard to, to get into the mind of Paul and say, here's what he knows and here's why he knows it. Um, you know, I was raised um, pr- probably more to just assume that Paul knows what will happen at the end of time. And the reason he knows it is because God has revealed it to him. Um, but when we see how Paul uses um, and is uh, is um, evocative of things in you know Jeremiah or in Zechariah as he's describing um, his expectations for the future, I, I I wonder if we can appreciate what Paul does in much more human terms. Uh, and so as I'm reading First Thessalonians, which you know makes very few references to Jesus and teaches us almost. Uh, almost nothing as a as a as a historical figure, and yet we can we can appreciate how a Jew uh, a Jewish author such as Paul was, who um, who comes at the gospel with uh, the stories that he's uh, heard all his life, including some of the eschatological uh, dramatic elements from uh, from Zechariah and the vision of of uh, of God standing astride the Mount of Olives. And splitting the mountain into a valley and providing a uh, a means of escape uh, from the uh, for Zion from their enemies um, and the salvation of God and the victory of God and His army over uh, over His enemies. Um, that Paul has this story of God um, at the head of a, of a of a host of a, of an army, and so as Paul thinks about what he expects for and from Jesus. He doesn't come with a blank sheet and just, you know, what what will happen? And then God reveals it to Paul and Paul writes that down. But instead, he, he, he slips Jesus into this narrative. He says, if this is what God was always going to do, and now I've encountered uh, Jesus as God's son, as the one who was faithful to God to the point of death and to whom God has been faithful by raising him uh, back to life, then he must be doing these things 
through Jesus. Uh, and so to see how Paul um, uh, shapes his eschatological expectations uh, um, under the influence of his scriptural heritage, uh, um, I, I just I, I think that's a, a, a fascinating connection to see being made. So when Paul says, you know, Jesus is going to uh, going to return with this with this entourage with this host, that he's not just saying something uh, new or even saying something cultural, but that he's saying something that has a, a, a longer and, and deeper history with the people, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think this, this shows some of how you, you do your work with regard to the Old Testament, as, as certainly you notice that in the vision in Zechariah, that it seems like Paul's drawing from there. It's Yahweh himself who's the actor, but that Jesus has been put in place of Yahweh as um as and ultimately as the one who is enthroned as part of the scene so i thought that was um i don't know it was just one of many you know nice insights that you had in the text uh, so um i thought it was worth um bringing out and discussing a little bit more um you've obviously done quite a bit of work uh not just on jesus and the gospels but on paul you've written a, a number of books um and i think that that kind of came out a little bit toward the end of your uh, your chapter on paul as you were very concerned to um, articulate um, your own scholarly position on um, Paul with regard to ongoing covenantal concerns and with respect to issues of Jewish-Gentile affairs. Um, I'll give you a chance to plug your other work here and, uh, and say something about your thesis and uh, how it's situated um, with regard to the rest of scholarship. Oh, well, um, I... You know, I wow, what to say about Paul? He's such a fascinating figure, and um, and maybe the thing that I want to take most seriously about Paul is that he has a very robust sense of uh, one his encounter with Jesus. Nobody can take that away from him, right? He, he he's going to insist on I encountered Jesus just as the other uh, disciples or apostles uh, did, and uh, whatever else you think of me, you can't deny that. And two, that he is the one who is commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, and, uh, and almost to the point of being territorial about that, that, that taking the gospel to the Gentiles is his responsibility. So that in Romans, as he's writing to a church that he didn't plant, that, aren't, that isn't populated with or led by his, uh, his followers, this is a bit of a, a problem for Paul, that he needs to... Uh, that he needs to extend the uh, umbrella of his apostolic authority over this Roman church um, because because this was uh, this was uh, um, Jesus uh, um, not challenge but his, uh, his the task that Jesus uh, gave to Paul or as 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 Paul says three times in Romans the grace that was was given to him. And so as Paul's thinking about how the gospel message of an of a Messiah for Israel and the God of Israel being enthroned in the cosmos as king, how does that relate to non-Israelites? Uh, Paul's first conviction, I think, is that it happens, one, in fulfillment of the scriptures, and two, um, for the Gentiles as Gentiles, that there is no... Uh, that there is no uh, uh, idea of transforming the Gentiles uh, into Jews, but rather extending the kingdom of God over the Gentiles uh, uh, as Gentiles. And so as I'm trying to read Romans, I'm, um, 
uh, and the rest of Paul's letters. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand how does he conceive of these people that he's writing to who are Gentiles, but they're no longer Gentiles. They don't worship the gods of the Gentiles. They don't engage in, in the practices of idolatry and whatnot. Uh, in, in some ways, they have Judaized. They worship the God of the Jews through the Messiah of the Jews, reading the scriptures of the Jews. In some ways, they've Judaized. And yet having Judaized, they're not Jews. And, and so even what to call them becomes a, becomes a problem. Um, you know, one, uh, uh, one scholar, Josh Garraway, calls them Gentile Jews, which I think is probably exactly right, but unsatisfying as a, uh, a, as a label. Um, so just trying to, uh, you know, accurately describe this, this tension at the heart of what Paul's doing as the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles for the God of Israel. Uh, is is uh, uh, is an ongoing project? Yeah. Um, so obviously you're engaged, I think, with um, the work of Matt Tyson and Mark Nanos and some of the others. And a, a key passage for you, it would seem, is, is Romans two seventeen, right, um, where Paul says, you know, if you call yourself a Jew, if that's even the right way uh, to uh, to translate that uh, that difficult passage. Um, so working a lot on themes of covenant continuity then, and on the question of um, who is Paul really addressing? Is he addressing a Gentile um, who is attracted to Judaism in some way or trying to convert to Judaism or those kinds of issues are at the heart of your, your Paul work, it seems. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and I can, uh, you know, we, you know, a number of us probably have some sense of, you know, wondering, especially in our earlier days of faith, how, how does Paul get away with, um, doing things like we see in Galatians, where where Paul seems to be um, uh, setting aside circumcision as a mark of the of the people of God, or in Corinthians when he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. Uh, um, how, you know, how does Paul get away with that? When I read Genesis seventeen, um, I I I can't help but think there's a permanence, there's a eternality to what God is saying. Um, so unless we're willing to beg the question and just say, well, Paul is a spirit-infused uh, apostle of God and author of, you know, part of the New Testament, unless we're willing to say that, how do we make sense of this? And, um, you know, Stanley Stower's work, Andrew Doss's work, Matt Thiessen's work um, has really, uh, I think, provided some purchase on that question that, um, that Paul uh, isn't telling Israel, hey, that thing that we've been doing since, uh, since time immemorial, that's come to an end, uh, and instead now we're supposed to do this. Um, that's not what Paul's doing. And instead, what Paul's, uh, what Paul's doing is, is arguing about how these Gentiles who are already uh, uncircumcised, who are already outsiders, how do they get grafted into the uh, uh, Abrahamic family tree? Or adopted into God's family? How are they incorporated into the body of Christ? Um, and his answer is not circumcision. Um, and when you see it that way, then suddenly there's no tension with Genesis 17, where God tells Abraham to circumcise his family and says nothing about all the other families. Um, uh, and to me, it was, it was um, liberating is the wrong word, but it was eye-opening to uh to to realize oh there there actually is an answer to this question how how can paul how can paul think he can get away with uh his comments on circumcision i, th I think for paul is because he wasn't saying anything terribly controversial 
there were other Jews who, who said Gentiles couldn't be circumcised and by so doing become members of the covenant. So he's being fairly traditional and, um, and, and, and so he makes sense in his world. Yeah, well, obviously, the, um, the ongoing discussion of Paul and Judaism is generating a lot of heat right now. I think there's been a lot of uh, sessions at SBL devoted to the topic and edited volumes, and uh, you're, you're kind of at the heart and center of that with uh, your own work. But let's keep on task here with Jesus Darkly, I suppose. I've kind of led you on a rabbit trail, even if it was a fun one. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different here. I, we customarily do speed rounds um, at on script, and uh, we'll probably do at least one speed round toward the end here. But uh, just to mix things up, I told my students um, in my Life and Teachings of Jesus class yesterday, I said, hey, I'm going to be interviewing um, the scholar uh, uh, tomorrow for a podcast, and he's written this book, Jesus Darkly. I said, if you could ask the scholar any question that you want about Jesus, uh, what would you ask him? Uh, so we'll do that instead of a speed round. How about okay. that? Wonderful. Okay. Well, some of the questions might be a little off the wall, and I've only looked at them once, so uh, so we'll see what we, what we come up with. Here's here's the first one, uh, and hey, maybe this one's a softball, a slow pitch. This one will be easy to hit out the park for you, uh, at least we hope. Uh, what got you interested in studying and writing about Jesus? <laughs> Actually, it was a it was a class called the Life and Teachings of Jesus. Um, <laughs> Great. It, in in my in my seminary courses, I focused on the later New Testament and and wrote my dissert, my master's dissertation on First Peter, and I was in my advisor's office complaining about a lack of classes in the upcoming semester, uh, a lack of options for me to take, and he pointed out, well, there's this Life and Teachings of Jesus class that you could take, and I said, and these are the words I said, I said, uh, well, that's not really relevant to my interests. And as soon as those words came out of my mouth and I heard them in my ears, I stopped and I, my advisor just looked at me. He didn't say anything. And I, and I said, not that the life and teachings of my Lord and Savior are irrelevant <laughs> in the New Testament. Um, so as an act of penance, I took that class and, um, and then went on to do Ph.D. work in the, in the Gospels and the historical Jesus well, I'll, I'll have fun telling my students that uh, portion, or maybe I'll try to get them to listen to our podcast. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's a good way to sell the class, right? All right, how about this one? Um, now, this one will prove that um, perhaps um, I still have some work to do with my students. Um, so here's the question. Uh, why does Jesus pray to himself even though he is already the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Um, wow. Um, yeah, how, how, how are you gonna st- how are you going to start with that one? Oh, why does he pray to himself even, even though, though he is already, already the Father, Father Son, Son, and Holy Spirit? And Holy Spirit. <laughs> I have a feeling that no matter what analogy I use to answer this question, I'll have two Irish monks telling me, no, Patrick, that's modalism. <laughs> yes, um, you will. You will indeed. <laughs> uh, yes, the, the sense in which uh, Israel, sorry, the sense in which Jesus is the God of Israel, part of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, and at the same time, distinct from the Father and the Spirit, is uh, at the heart of the Christian mystery. Um, so I would be uncomfortable saying that Jesus prays to himself, um, because I think it affirms the unity of Jesus with Father and Spirit, but, but neglects the distinct persons uh, of, the, of the Trinitarian God at the, at the heart of our faith. Um, and that's probably the best answer I can give. It's that Christians are very bad at math, that in Christianity, three equals one. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a challenge, right? I'm not sure Jesus prays to himself. I mean, we might deny the premise there. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that uh, it, we certainly would want to maybe say something along the lines of uh, Jesus in his humanity could speak servant-wise, right? Even though he remained uh, the second person of the Trinity, uh, he's addressing God the Father as such, right? All right, here's a better question from the same student. Um, uh, how do we, uh, and we've been talking about the Gospel of John quite a bit, where Jesus performs mighty signs. He's uh, Here's a here's a practical question. How do we become more watchful for Jesus' signs? Mm, that's great. Um, there's, there's, there's a constant struggle, right, to see in uh, in, in our daily life the uh, the, the the God at work, uh, the, the God of creation at work. Um, you know, there's so many metaphors and analogies we can use to describe that, but. Um, you know, I think about Israel in the wilderness and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're guided for 40 years by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And so if at any given moment you wanted to know, Hey, what's God up to? You just step outside your tent. You look Oh, He's not moving. We stay here or, Oh, he seems to be on the move. Let's pack up. Uh, we're moving. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm envious of of that kind of ability to see God directly and tan- tangibly, um, but then I when I when I stop and realize what I do have, um, and particularly what I do have that maybe uh, many other people don't have, uh, I asked my students in a class last semester, "Give me some things that you take for granted every day." And one of them said something very uh, profane. He said, "I flush the toilet and it goes away," um, and. And I, th- I thought that's a great example here because imagine how different our lives would be if that weren't the case. Um, the things that we would have to do, the diseases that we would have to take to to take care of, uh, and so the challenge is, I think, not to um, uh, not to expect to see God moving in 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 wondrous ways, you know, signs from heaven that are uh, undeniable, but to recognize that God is moving in in. Uh, quotidian ways, in daily ways, in ways uh, large and small, and even the large ways I don't see because I'm just surrounded by them, like a fish is is surrounded by water. Um, so, to your student, I would say, I assume he or she is, you know, in his late in his late teens or in her early twenties. I, I would say that's the struggle of the life of faith, and that when you're, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy years down the road, you will still be trying to see God in everything because He is in everything. Thank you. All right, this one, this one you can probably answer pretty quickly. Um, did Jesus ever have a private life that consisted of a mate or a child? Ooh, uh, I'm going to say no, because we don't have any evidence to suggest he did. And because if he, if he did, it wouldn't have been controversial. So uh, that would have been preserved the way we get evidence of, say, Peter having a wife. All right. Um, what's your favorite nickname for Jesus? <laughs> uh, favorite Nick. I assume this is the titles kind of question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what yeah. is my favorite? You know, I, I I think I'll go with Emmanuel from okay. Matthew chapter one. Oh, that's good. Um, you could have gone with bro. Um, or you know, I mean, uh, yeah, Emmanuel is pretty safe. Um, that's a good one. Okay. Um, ooh, this one. Wow. Um, whew. Uh, does one need to take down their own cultural biases in order to fully understand Jesus and his teachings? Uh, good. That's a, well, that's a huge question, but I assume you want a quick answer. So uh, yes and no. Uh, yes, 
that uh, Jesus speaks to our culture and critiques its shortcomings and and its excesses. But no, Jesus is not only opposed to our culture, he is also uh, also, uh, um, alongside us working to bring the the hopes and aspirations uh, of our culture to fruition. Yeah, that's great. Um, I had a discussion with my students, you know, about portraitures of Jesus, you know, if we have, the, you know, the white Jesus with long flowing hair that suggests he never even probably even needed to use shampoo, uh, or if he did need to use it, he used it very regularly. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the risks um, of, of sort of preserving, you know, a white uh, sanitized Jesus like that, but also the risks in the other direction of not um, uh, seeing Jesus within our own culture, not seeing Jesus as having come for white people and for black people and for Hispanic people and for, you know, that if we can't picture Jesus as one of us, there's danger in that too. It was a good conversation. So I think that, I think that's exactly right. That, that the, the problem with white Jesus is if we forget that he, um, uh, that he speaks to other people, but then on the other hand, to critique white Jesus, you know, oh, Jesus wasn't white. He was a Middle Eastern uh, Jew. Well, that that's true, and yet white Jesus expresses that Jesus has something to say and has uh, uh, um, has a care for uh, white people. And I and I would be careful to critique white Jesus just as I would be ca- careful to critique black Jesus or Chinese Jesus or or whatever. Great. All right, this one's this one's actually keeps us on track a little bit with conversations about your book. Uh, what texts did you find most helpful when researching your book? Oh, what text did I find most helpful? When? Apart, apart from the Bible, I think we're going to disallow that one. <laughs> yeah, okay, not not the Bible. Um, oh goodness, what text did I find most? Uh, you know, to be honest, I think some of the most interesting things that I've read haven't even been about the Bible. They've been about the way humans navigate the past. Uh, and the present and the relationship between the two in less spiritual or less religious ways that when you're talking about the Bible, there's, there's so much at stake that sometimes it's, it's hard to pay attention to the, the human dynamics at work. So when you read about how Americans have remembered Watergate or Abraham Lincoln or how uh, Israelis have remembered Masada or something, the temperature comes way down and you can appreciate, uh, again, humans navigating past and present. Um, and then when you turn to the Bible and you see similar things, how does Paul navigate past and present? How does the author of Matthew or Hebrews navigate past and present? It can be quite eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, here's here's one that... Um that I like a lot. And this one, uh, this one might force you to, to, uh, to testify, uh, to give your witness here. Uh, so here it is. After all your research, who do you, and the you is underlined, who do you think Jesus is? The Christ, the son of the living God. That's pretty good. Uh, you and Peter get along well. Um, yeah. That's not always a good boat to be strapped into. Yeah. Okay. Um, um that, I, I would say honestly, though I have, I have. That's a great question, and I would give the same answer uh, now that I that uh, I was confronted with, um, you know, twenty five, twenty six years ago. Uh, I I came to faith in a foot washing ceremony, where I 
was in a foul mood because the last thing I wanted was anybody to be washing my feet. Um, and I was angry and I was pressured to participate. And, um, and then something happened when the two, I was a sophomore in high school and these were two seniors in high school who I, I looked up to both of them. And as they knelt before me and placed my foot in the basin and washed my feet um, and then dried my feet, and I, 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 I had a sudden realization that the thing about Jesus that I'd always heard but never understood was that he would do for me what I would never do for somebody else. Because I would never have watched, washed anybody else's feet. And yet here are these two boys washing, uh, washing my feet. Um, and, and, and I'd say that has stuck with me, that Jesus is the one who does for me what I would never do for somebody else. And then the, the, the sharp edge of that, the, the, the cutting part is that, and then he calls me to do for others what I would not have done for them uh, apart from him and his spirit. Wow, that is, uh, that is a, an awesome testimony and just the sort of the physicality and the, the servanthood of, of a foot washing ceremony, uh, that that's what changed you. Um, I love that. Um, I love that testimony. And, uh, and feet are weird and, and kind of gross. Some people, you yes. know, some of us have uh, kind of a phobia around feet. I'm not into feet. I think feet are, are, are pretty disgusting. So I'm kind of in your camp. But I was, I was on a rampage about how disgusting feet were because I think it was my, one of my teenage boys' feet was creeping me out. Um, and, uh, and so I was, you know, I was, I was, I was kind of going off on it and, uh, my foot was sitting on the coffee table. My wife grabbed my foot and licked the top of it. And, uh, I, I absolutely freaked out. I'm like, what are you doing? You can't do that. That's so just wrong. Right. Um, but she doesn't have the same foot issue, I guess, as I do, because, um, she just did it just to shut me up. Like, no, feet aren't really that big of a deal. Like, get over it and just, just deal with life. Right. It's just a foot. Um, Little did she know that wouldn't shut you up. That would get you to share that story. On yeah. A she's going to be absolutely mortified. I'm not actually, I, you know, I'm not going to tell her that I told anybody this on, on script because yeah, she, she probably would be mortified, but you know what? Maybe she wouldn't be mortified um, because she doesn't have this foot thing, right? That um, that you and I apparently both have. Uh, so, well, now the world now the world knows about my wife and her, um, you know, her her ability to lick a foot. Wow. I'm, I'm just I'm just glad we're on track. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. One last one last question from my student um, students. Um, wow. Uh, another great one here. Um, how does remembering Jesus lead to knowing him? How does remembering Jesus lead to knowing him? Ooh, that's, uh, that's a really, tough question. That's and... what your whole book's about in a sense. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to be concise. That, that's right. Well, you know, on the, on the one hand, reading Jesus in the new Testament, remembering Jesus with the new Testament provides some substance, it provides the content to what we would remember. You know, we, we could live our lives in this world convinced that God is its source, that he is good, that he works for what is good in this world. And, and yet without the, without the content and the, and the details in the Bible, we, we would, we would still be quite ignorant. So remembering Jesus with the new Testament provides, fills in a lot of that, uh, uh, of that picture. But at the end of the day, that filling in still isn't enough because if all I've done is sat at my table 
uh, reading the text. And then when I'm done, I close the text and make myself a cup of coffee and grab some cookies. Um, that, that does nobody any good. That knowing Jesus requires the act of getting up from the table and going out into the world. Um, and I, it, 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 it's well beyond my expertise to be able to say to anybody, you've remembered Jesus well, or you haven't remembered Jesus well. Um, I, I, I suppose the, the most I can do is, is say at any given moment, we're doing our best. And sometimes doing our best looks like remembering Jesus poorly, failing in our memory. And we see that in the Gospels, uh, certainly sometimes catastrophically, uh, you know, Judas or the, the rich young man. Um, and sometimes with more potential for redemption, like, uh, you know, Peter, we've mentioned a few times. Um, um, but we, we, uh, we are always engaged in that process. And even when we do it, even when we do it poorly, we know that that, that's not the, that's not the last act. That's not the, that's not the final word that whatever today held tomorrow's a new day and tomorrow holds that opportunity for remembering him well, for taking that content that I've learned in the text and bringing it out into the world, um, producing the shalom, the, the peace, the, the wholeness, the restoration that, uh, that that our faith tells us God is producing in the world. Uh, I think remembering Jesus means uh, um, um, uh, means actively working for bringing about that peace in the in the world around us. I, I, I should say one last thing though, with, uh, which is with a humility that knows I I can't do it. I'm, I may be working to bring it about, but my work doesn't bring it about. Ultimately, it's it's God who brings it about, and and I. I just pray to be uh, a useful instrument in that endeavor. Raphael, you can preach it, brother. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can. Thank you, you can bring it. Um, <laughs> that's that's great. Uh, yeah, we're not even going to need to go to the Sunday sermon um, this week. Uh, you know, after after hearing that, I'm, no, I'm just kidding. Everybody, go to church. Um, I do. No, I do that's, endorse that's really, going to church. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that's that's really well done. Um, t- time's flying by here as I'm just sort of looking at how much time's uh, already elapsed in our interview, and I want to make sure we, we we jump back into the substance of your book a, a little bit more and then wrap up. Um, uh, obviously, we can't cover even a fraction of what you've done, but um, I, I did think that um, maybe we could sharpen a little bit more um, precisely what's going on with this remembering business and how it relates to, um, on the one hand, what we might call distortion or simplification. Uh, there are various ways distortions, negative languages you point out in the book itself. Um, but maybe, um, I think if you walked, um, walked us through uh, the example that you used uh, to start your second chapter uh, with regard to the, um, the statue, the civil rights statue uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, and um, how that act of creating a, uh, a statue on the basis of a portrait um, how that relates to what we do whenever we remember and remember Jesus. Yeah, um, you know, I was I was mowing my yard one day and listening to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, and he told a fascinating story about this statue in, in Kelly Ingram Park uh, in Birmingham, uh, Alabama, and um, how the statue was itself a distortion of a picture. And that's easy enough to to see. You just you know you just look at the a picture of the statue and a picture the picture that it's it's based on, and and you could you can chronicle those those differences. Um, but then the the really interesting story for me is not just seeing the differences between the statue and the picture, but also 
seeing the differences between what we see in the picture when we look at the actual photograph of events that was taken on May 3rd, 1963, uh, what we see in that picture and what's actually going on in that picture, because those two are actually quite different, uh, that, that our interpretation of the picture is a distortion of the events that the picture uh, chronicles. Yeah, uh, just to clarify for listeners, um, there's uh, an image of the pictures in, in your book, Jesus Historically, but um, the image involves a, a policeman with sunglasses on, uh, and he's, he's, uh, there's a dog leaping you know, at uh, a black man. And, um, and, and so it's an interpretation of, of what actually lay behind the picture. Um, we tend to see it one way, but you're saying the real story behind that image is quite different. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, and Gladwell lays this out, that the, that the real story is of a white police officer protecting a, a black kid from, a, from his lunging dog. Uh, and this black kid isn't a... Uh, civil rights protester. He, he's actually just an interested observer who came down to the park because he heard there was going to be a demonstration. Uh, and then as it starts walking towards him, he says, he testifies that he tried to get away. He ducks behind a, a police barricade. And that's when he uh, gets too close to this dog that, that lunges at him. But the photograph becomes a powerful moment in the story of uh, the American civil rights movement. It becomes a touchstone that sparks awareness and support um, uh, nationwide and even worldwide. Um, and even today, quite honestly, when we look at this picture, even knowing what it is a picture of, we still see the civil rights um, uh, struggle isn't strong enough of a word. The, 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 the tragedy and the injustice um, of, uh, of the American South in, in early 1960s and the struggle to address those those issues and um, and so appreciating that we bring uh, that we bring these lenses to the objects that we're looking at and that both of those are factors in play the object being perceived and the lens through which perception is happening uh, I, I think is important and more than important it's it's not it's not um, it's not a thing to be mourned that we have lenses that we cannot perceive the reality uh, as it exists in itself. Instead, it's it's a thing to be celebrated because those lenses enable us to see. Without those lenses, it's not that we would see better; it's that we would see nothing. Um, and so, you know, responsible perception, responsible interpretation means being aware of the ways our lenses uh, distort and change, um, not so that we can undo them. Because again, undoing distortion is just distortion in a, in a, in another direction. It doesn't mean we see better. But so that we can appreciate how we how we bring the uh, the past and its lessons to bear on the on the present, that bringing to bear uh, uh, may change and flux as the challenges and questions of the present change and flux. Um, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I've, I think I've actually finished the sentence um, sentence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, an analogy I sometimes use with my students that's similar is to talk about, you know, like if I was to take a picture of a student who's a smiley student ordinarily, right, but I happen to catch her frowning, right, and then I, I was to maybe do a Monet rendering of her, uh, and then in the Monet rendering, I was to change her to smiling, even though in the picture she wasn't, right, to capture who she really is better, and if I was to ask the students, which one's more accurate, um, well, that's a hard question to answer, right? Because in some ways, the original photo is a more ac accurate representation of the moment. 
um, but the 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 the, the Monet right it, it captures the larger truth, and I think that's um, sort of what you're saying can happen with regard to the Gospels that some of the literary artistry that we might see might involve an intentional distortion even, um, but it's in the service of a larger truth that it's a broader kind of public event um, that is more faithful. Um, to uh, the tenor of the significance of what's happening um, than the detail itself would have allowed. Is, is, that, is that a fair way of, of getting at what you're up all about? That's a great analogy. I, I like it a lot. Um, but I also want to admit that um, I find some discomfort, not in your analogy, but in this whole phenomenon that we're talking about, um, you know, because I wrestle with what are the boundaries then? When does when does distortion in perception become uh, misperception, right? When, when do we see the wrong, the wrong thing? And, and, and we're dealing with that uh, uh, on broader cultural levels, you know, right now. Does, does, um, you know, does it matter uh, whether something happened to Jesse Smollett in Chicago uh, or not? And, and, you know, some people say, yes, it matters because it didn't happen and because that's not who America is. And then other people will say, no, it doesn't matter, because even if it didn't happen, that is who America is. And so we can still treat the event as uh, as true. And so these are these are fraught questions. Um, well, I, I think just for the sake of time, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get in our ordinary speed round with you. Um, but I'm going to ask you just a couple of them. And then how about we'll do a final question so that you can you can um, wrap up uh, uh, this interview. Okay. Um, so here, here's here's a here's a question then uh, for you. Speed round. Uh, you don't get to defend your answer. Just real quick. Um, what's something you find embarrassing? Odor. <laughs> Odor. Uh, and feet. We already yes, know and feet. feet. And feet. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you think there's intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? Uh, that's that is. Do you believe in aliens? No. No. Have you ever driven a motorcycle? No. No. I. You know, I, I. I did when I was like ten. This little dirt bikey thing. But ever since then, I haven't, and I want to. I want to um, too. We should get together and do this, Matthew. A motorcycle Bible tour. Yes. Yes. Twenty twenty. All right. Uh, we're gonna start planning. Um, all right. Uh, and how about this one? Then, if you were to complete a field outside theology or history or religion, what would the field be? If you were to complete a PhD. If I were to complete a p- outside Bible theology and history, yeah. I-, I think political science. Poli sci. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's good. All right. Last question for you then. Um, what do you think the church most needs to learn from your book? Let's say a pastor was to incorporate some of your insights into a sermon. Hey, you've already preached for us here. Um, but uh, let's say a pastor wants to do something more. Uh, what would you hope that he or she would communicate to the flock uh, that comes from your book? That's a great question. Um, and I have like 17 different answers, but the one I'll give you, I think, is that I want to free up a sense of um, opportunity and freedom to insert ourselves into the text, right? To say, to say that the Christian faith isn't defined by the Bible as it is alone. The Christian faith is defined instead by how God's people, actual flesh and blood people, engage the text and flesh it and then live it out uh, in the world today. So remembering Jesus with the New Testament is always an extra textual uh, affair. I love it. All right, Raphael, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. This is Matthew Bates for OnScript, and I've been talking with Raphael Rodriguez about his book, 
Jesus Darkly, Remembering Jesus with the New Testament, uh, published by Abingdon in 2018. There's a link on the website to the book for purchases, www.onscript.study. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate. 